We're about to get down and dirty into the bird dog training. I didn't mean to say into the bird dog training. Does that still make sense? Yeah, it does. And I can always take out the. All right. Can... If, it, if it sounds weird. So we're fine. You don't mean to just re say it? Do you want to re say it? Sure. All right. <laughs> we'll have you re say it. And then... <laughs> All right. Here we go. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Waltons, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, I'm joined by Josh Miller, owner of Riverstone Kennels, for the second episode in our two-part series titled Retriever Roadmap. We're about to get down and dirty into bird dog training. Much better. Glad you did it. Okay. That's the only thing that I script on this entire on this entire show, Josh. So I figure I can at least you know read. It's the only thing you could retake. On. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, the, the first one was terrible. The second one was great. Yeah. In case you're wondering. <laughs> uh, the funny thing is, Brandon always like if I start talking before or after something, like he'll include that into the show and randomly. Randomly, randomly. just appears. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Ready, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. As always, is our producer. Uh, we are joined once again today by Josh Miller. Last week, Last episode, last week, uh, we we learned Josh's story and, and his journey into the bird dog training world. Took him basically all over the world, uh, overseas. Uh, it, it's cool to hear your journey, Josh, um, and I, I hope people enjoy that. But today we're going to dive into the Retriever Roadmap. Um, this is... Again, if you want to hear more about kind of how we set this up, you're going to have to go back into last week. But this week we're gonna we're gonna dig into all of your dog training years into your mind and and try to help people understand a little bit about what you're thinking and how you're working with dogs. So are you are you ready to rock and roll? We are all ready to go. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you got turkeys coming up, turkeys on the brain, uh, like like many of us do. So uh, appreciate you giving us a little bit of time. Um, let's start with. The, you know, just a quick, if you wouldn't mind, just a one or two sentence summary of what is the Retriever Roadmap before we jump into it. Yeah, well, um, the Retriever Roadmap is awesome. I mean, I think that that's like the short version. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, so yeah, so here's what Retriever Roadmap really is, is um, it is a, a video-based step-by-step uh, training program that if you are training your dog at home, you can go through and watch each step, watch different dogs, your know, dogs have not done these drills before, and really go through and try to map out what the best route is for you. And it took us a very long time, many years, to, to pull this whole program together. And the idea is, is that no two dogs or no two people will go through a training regimen the same way. So there is no step one, two, three, A, B, C, Everyone has a different path and every dog has strengths and weaknesses. Every owner has strengths and weaknesses. Every owner has you know, different tools or uh, property available to them. 
And so finding the best route uh, that is for you and your dog is really crucial on how you achieve your ultimate goals. And, uh, you know, so what we've done is we've broken this down. Um, you know, I think video is, is so impactful for people because they can watch what's going on rather than if you read something, if you hear about something, there's always, you know, that up for interpretation piece of it that can, um, really be a block, you know, for, for a lot of people, especially when you don't do this every day, how can you expect to know, you know, all the lingo or how something is supposed to look. And so uh, video is just really neat, you know, to be able to, um, you know, allow people to absorb things and really communicate as clearly as possible for us. Yeah. I, I remember when I started training Daisy, I, I got some old, I think it was Rick Smith or maybe it was Ronnie or maybe it was both of them. I think it was both of them. And I watched some of their old DVDs. Um, I had to pull a DVD player off of the <clears throat> out of the attic and plug it back in to to hook up to our TV. But I remember sitting there watching, and just the patience that they had working with a puppy and starting their whole training process. You know, the foundation is so critical. Everything stems from that, and. So watching them just do the same thing again, 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 and all of a sudden the puppy did what they wanted and it was like, boom, then they were able to move on to the next step. So seeing it is really, really helpful, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of value there. We're going to dig into it today verbally. You can listen and try to understand. Um, But then obviously, if you want more information, you can head to retrieveroadmap.com. That's the the actual website that you have built for this, um, this training process that you have put together. But let's start with the first bullet, if you will, in your uh, roadmap, which is train the trainer. Because I know a lot of people that don't have necessarily have the time to train their dog start to finish. Um, so they, But they do have the finances and they're willing to send that dog to a trainer like you, Josh. And then when they get the dog back, I've heard some say, the dog doesn't do what it did at the trainer. And I think the reason is because they don't necessarily grasp. I mean, you can help explain this, Josh, but they might not know what what uh, they're letting the dog get away with or how the dog is slipping in this area because of the things that they, they, they don't know what they don't know, right? So training the trainer um, obviously is important. I've learned that. Um, but from your perspective, how big is that in this process? Yeah, well, I uh, I really believe that it's the most important program or course that we put in the program. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, when you're training your dog, when you're handling your dog, you know, you're the coach of the team. You're the driver of the car. And if you don't know how to, you know, get the, guard, the car to go, if you don't know how to, you know, move your team in the right direction – you're never going to get to the the point that you want to be at. I know this sounds really funny coming from a person that makes their living training dogs, but you know there there is that that um, hurdle when the dogs go home. And and let me kind of tell you, I'll break it down of one of um, one of the, the the biggest frustrations that that I have. And um, you know, Dave who. Uh, if you don't know Dave, Dave's trained uh, for me at the kennel now for almost 10 years. So we've had a lot of experience you know, together kind of working through a lot of different dogs. And uh, you, you always have those dogs that, 
they were just difficult, right? They were really frustrating. Maybe they weren't overly natural. Maybe they just really had a hard time understanding things. You kind of pulled your hair out you had, at each you know, stop or each you know, hurdle, but you got the dog to the end result and you're so proud of it and you're so happy and the owner comes and you spend all this time showing the owner, showing everything. And it's like, okay, cool. You guys did your job. Thanks. And they leave and you're just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if, if, if it really sunk in. Yeah, I don't know if it really if it really sunk in of how much went into this dog and every hurdle that, that you know we accomplished and overcame along the way. And you know, but how could they? Yeah. Right? Like they weren't there, they didn't witness the ebbs and flows and the peaks and valleys and all the work that went into that. And so here's are, where are I those, think do um, those dogs sorry to jump in, but do those dogs tend to be the dogs that regress or take steps backwards in the progress that you've made with them? Um, you know, oftentimes I think more naturally they regress. I mean, there are other dogs that regress just simply because, um, you know, the owners go home and they don't keep up with the training. Um, you know, that was one of the solves with Retriever Roadmap is, okay, now you have a trained dog, but that's not a robot. You know, that dog doesn't just stay that way for the rest of their life. So now you have a platform to go to, to continue to not only keep your dog up, but, you know, maybe tighten up any loose ends you saw happen over, over hunting season, or you're struggling with something, go back, find what it is and find what you need to do to fix it and keep things fresh, keep things going, keep that dog at the level that you want them to be. Can you, can you um, give us an example of what one of those might be? Sure. Yeah. So, um, let's just use, um, boy, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, okay. So for, um, I know you guys are, are upland specific. So I'm going to use like one waterfall and one upland, you know, sure. uh, example. So, um, waterfall example, your dog starts breaking on hunts, you know, meaning that, you know, before you're done shooting, before you actually send the dog, the dog is going, you know, into the decoys. And, uh, for those of you that are, are upland specific hunters, maybe, um, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't seen this, but you know, birds are coming in, you, you know, pull up, your buddies pull up to shoot, boom, 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 boom. We do not want the dog running out in front of us, you know, before we send them. I mean, it is the the most dangerous place for your dog to be is running, breaking out in front of those gun barrels because all your your buddies are probably focused on on you know killing birds rather than where the dog is at, and there's just nothing good that happens from it. Um, so, from a safety aspect, you know, along with a number of other reasons, we want that dog to be steady. So, your dog starts breaking. Okay, well, he never broke at the trainer. He didn't break in the first few hunts. It's something that he just ended up getting excited. He got away with it once. They challenged me on it. Okay, so how do I fix this? Well, you could probably send him back to the trainer the next summer, right? But, you know, it might be something that you want to fix, you know, mid-season or you want to really work on it. Well, this gives you the platform to go there and say, okay, so this is my issue. I need to go, you know, back to the steadiness part. What are the prerequisites to get to this point and what do I have to do? You know, so find where that loose end is and wrap it up. Um, for an upland dog, you know, maybe it's the dog is now dropping, you know, that bird short. And if you have a bird that is, you know, winged, maybe when that dog drops it, he takes off running again. The dog has to go grab it again and then he drops it again. The dog, you know, maybe he gets distracted and drops it. And all of a sudden that, that bird is gone and you're trying to find that bird. You know, it's not a complete retrieve. Now we go back and say, okay, so he's not finished his re- finishing his retrieve. Let's go into the train retrieve yo section. Okay, so this is the point that he's at. Maybe we have to take a few steps back, iron this out. There's so many things that happen. And I think one of the things that I like to talk about is hunting season will naturally 
unravel training season at least to an extent. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it just, yep. it's just the way that it is. You know, and you think about, you know, if somebody's out there going, well, why is that? I think the biggest reason is because, you know, training, we are trying to control every situation. Like, you know, like we use bird launchers to keep the birds in place. We know right where they are and we can release them at the time that we need to, right? It doesn't happen that way you know, in the in the wild, in the field, right? Yep. And so, um, you know, we go from very controlled situations to completely uncontrolled situations. And naturally, when you do that, it just offers itself some gray area where these dogs can get out of pocket because you're on a live hunt. Maybe you either don't make a correction or, you know, far too late on the correction because you didn't know it was coming. There's a lot going on. And so sure. it naturally is going to unravel. And that's why, like, the biggest thing, that, that I like to say um, when it revolves around training is I want people to fall in love with the process, not with the end result, because quite frankly, there's never an end result. You know, even when you get through a finished dog, fully trained, it doesn't mean that that dog stays there. There's always things to keep up on. There are always things that, you know, they're going to regress on. You need to sharpen back up and move back forward. There's always going to be this ebb and flow. But if you fall off with the process itself, you are going to be successful and you're going to enjoy working with your dog on a regular basis. You're going to enjoy working your dog, you know, every year you'll see, you'll notice what went wrong. What do I have to fix? What could he get better at? What can we, you know, take another step on? Um, it is a process. And so that's why I always challenge people to fall in love with the process because there's not an end result. You know, don't, don't worry about getting to an end result because there is no end. So fall in love with the process. The one of the steps in your training is foundation. And that's been key for, for my training as well. Because anytime I feel like my dog <clears throat> has has done exactly what you said, you know, like when you're in a in a hunt situation, there's other dogs, there's other hunters, there's a lot of commands being yelled out there. It's uh uncontrolled environment and it's your attention at least for me, you know, like I'm, I'm on the field working, I'm working with other people. I can't watch my dog 100% of the time. Like I could when I'm training with her. So I can't hold her accountable for every miss because I might not see something in the moment. So that's where things can slip from my end. And I think that's probably pretty common for most people that are out hunting is the scenario, like you mentioned, can allow for a dog to not be held accountable for certain things that they might be held during training season, which, you know, leads to them slipping a little bit, but having the foundation set allows us, allows us to really quickly bring our dogs back to, back into what we want them to do. Right. I mean, that's, that's the goal here. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the foundation is, I mean, that's what everything is built off of, right. It's no different than a house that, you know, without the foundation, without a very solid foundation, it doesn't matter what type of a structure you build on that foundation. It will never be as strong as it could have been and likely will have issues down the road. You know, that's the same thing with our dogs. The stronger of a foundation we have, the more solid our structure will be from that point forward with everything we build off it. And I think when you look at your dog, you know, think of it in terms of building. Okay. So what is your end goal? Okay. Are you building a, you know, tiny little house in town that's, you know, just a, a one level with, you know, two bedrooms and a bathroom. Okay. Like you may not need as much of a foundation, but if you have big goals and big aspirations of a finished dog and everything that a finished dog can do, now you're building a skyscraper and that building needs much more of a foundation. It needs that much more structure underneath it and it needs it to be that much more solid because of what is going on top of it. And so you know, your dog is really no different here. 
you need as solid of a foundation as possible to move forward and build on. And, you know, sometimes I think when, when we have these big goals and it's like, oh, I want to get, you know, my dog to, you know, take hand signals. I want to run a blind retrieve. I want to do all these great things, right? It's tempting to not focus on that foundation because this is the boring stuff. Like this is the stuff every dog you know does. I want to get to the stuff that not every dog can do. Yeah. Well, the reality I want to get is, to the birds. I want to get out. to the birds. That's what everybody wants yeah. to do. They want to get to the birds. That's right. Well, because that's the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. there's nothing fun about, you know, walking up and down your driveway on leash. There's just not. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you have any issue in the field, and there are very few exceptions to this, most of them can be tracked down to that foundation. Like there's something going on in your foundation that isn't solid enough. And so it always has to be revisited. I mean, I have, you know, all my personal dogs, you know, they're master hunter, hunter retriever champions. They have their titles, have everything proven. Um, we, we do on-leash obedience every day, every single day. You know, and it's like we don't ever get over it. You know, but but really this is where um, I think, you know, that the train the trainer piece tra- that, you know, you guys talked about here at the beginning. It's like, you know, that that's so big because we talk about, you know, we talk about expectations and why that's important, right? Like yeah. your expectations are a huge part of this. If you have the expectation that your seven-month-old puppy is going to be a complete all-star, you know, five months from now when we get in the field, your expectations are wrong. And you, it's likely going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to pushing the dog too fast, right? Like yeah. that's a big deal. Let's talk about reading your dog. How do you read your dog? And how do you know what they're talking about? And how do you best communicate with them? Like, that's a big part of this. And so, um, but it's a part that a lot of people naturally, you're not going to, you're not going to be around. Like, um, I have a good friend of mine that's a mechanic, right? And, you know, I might know how to change my oil, but I don't know how to, you know, diagnose something when something's going wrong, right? Like he does because he sees it all the time. You know, that to me is what this does is that I see this every day. Yeah, a professional sees us every day. Like, let's teach you how to do this. And I think it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go to the puppy stage. So would you say that we're kind of coming into puppy season right now? Are we in the heart of it? I mean, you you guys are breeders, you and your wife, Whitney. Um, but I think around the country, there's a lot of puppies that are, that are uh, being born around the spring season. Is that accurate? Oh, for sure. And, uh, and if you would ask my wife, she would be reiterating that, uh, yes, we are in puppy season (laughs) because, uh, we currently have five litters on the ground, which is completely abnormal, but it's just the way that heat cycles lined up for us this year was like everything all at once. Um, yes, we're, we're definitely in it. You said the other day you told me that you had two litters come out at the exact same night, didn't you? Oh my gosh. It was, it was incredible. We've never had that before. Um, we had, we had a litter that started. So it was a litter of six, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my wife and I both are early risers because of, I think naturally, you know, the, the obligations of, you know, caring for animals and everything, but naturally you know, were early risers. So, uh, you know, we're up early. We should get up about four, get our work done, get the day going. Well, it was like, it was one of those days that like the kids get home, you know, sent home sick from daycare. Um, so we're dealing with, you know, caring for them, um, you know, all the stuff. And then it's like, we finally get crawling into bed at 11 at night and Whitney checks her camera that, that is on her mama's. And she's like, Oh, she's like, I think we're having puppies tonight. And of course I'm like, are you kidding me? Yes. You know, so we crawl out of bed, uh, you know, start welcoming this litter that was actually a couple of days early. And uh, it was on 
puppy five of six was just being born. And Whitney looks over at the other mom and goes, huh, we might be having two litters tonight, which was a litter of 11. And so (laughs) number one came before number six for the first litter. So we got done with, with that. And then, you know, I, so we, we started about 11 o'clock at night and we got done at one o'clock the next afternoon. Um, so we were zombies there for a little bit and that is so abnormal. Um, but that's, uh, you know, Whitney likes to joke and say that that's, uh, that's mother nature's way of reminding us that we are not in charge of our jobs here. Yeah. To be good stewards of them. Well, congrats on all, all the puppies. So if somebody, wants what one common question we get asked uh, or I get asked quite a bit. And I think, you know, Ron and, and Scott and Bill the same, um, they, they ask, how do you know which kind of dog is right for you? And I always tell people, I, I said, what do you want to do with that dog? Where are you going to be hunting? You know, if you're, if you're hunting cattails 99% of the time for pheasants, you probably don't want a, a big ranging pointing breed dog that wants to get out three, 400 yards. I mean, you want, a lab, you know, that's a great cattail busting dog, you know, so it depends on the, the type of hunting you're going to do, but how do you direct people to find the right puppy? And then once they determine what kind of a breed they want, how do they pick a puppy out of a litter? How do you pick a puppy out Mm -hmm. of a litter? Yeah. So great questions. And I think you hit it on the head where the big thing here for us is we need to, and not necessarily we, but you, if you're looking for a puppy, you need to have those conversations with yourself first. You know, what makes sense? You know, what do you want? What do you need as a family member, as a hunting dog, as a companion? And I think the biggest challenge I have for people is be honest with yourself. You know, there, there's nothing more frustrating than, you know, getting a dog that is wrong for what you're looking for. And I cannot tell you why, but it seems like there's this trend right now of wanting to be different. And I don't get it when it relates to dogs. And so the reason I say that is, you know, if, if someone wants a Labrador and they have, you know, they've done the research and they've had Labradors in the past and like, you know, what, all my buddies have Labradors. I'm just going to get something different. Right. And I get uh, a short hair because it's different. Right. Well, that short hair is not a lab. Right. I mean, so like it's going to have, you know, likely more energy. It's going to have more run. It's going to have all these things. And then, you know, waterfall dog, you know, probably not your late season dog like your lab is. Right. Like so. So what what is right for you? Um, you know, it, it, the, the whole different thing, it just it, it kind of bothers me because that's where people get frustrated. You know, we have um, just actually a client the other day that, you know, called and was like, hey, you know, this dog is great in the field, all this stuff. But like. He, he goes after every skunk and every porcupine and, and every raccoon that we've run <laughs> He's a into. German dog, and isn't I'm, it? <laughs> he's a wire hair. Yes. And I'm like, well, you're not going to get that out of him. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's who he is. Yes. Um, and he's like, man, I've never had a dog do this in the past. I'm like, yeah, because you've had labs. Yes. You know, it's like, it's, it's different. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it, it, again, it's just like, what what's right for you? And yep. so once you have that, the big thing there is now you you get with a breeder that you trust and that is doing things right. And um, the reason I say that is because, you know, there's a lot of people that are breeding. There's a lot of people you know, that are, um, you know, that are you know, having their own you know, lines for you know, their own your reasoning. What makes sense to you? Like what, like to me, you need to have a, a, a breeder 
that has their credentials, that is doing specifically the health testing. They need to be doing those health testing. Um, need to make sure that they're producing the happiest, healthiest puppies that they can. And then when you get to the point that to me, you that's your homework, right? So like yeah. you, you have the lines you want, you have the breeder that you trust, you have everything from that point forward. Like you don't have to do anything as far as I'm concerned, because like, to be honest with you, I don't like the whole pick of the litter thing. And we don't even do that. I'll tell you what we do at the kennel is you, when you decide to get a puppy from us, you know, we, we want to learn about you, you know, who are you? What's your family situation? What's your living situation? Do you have kids? Do you hunt? What do you hunt? How many days a year do you hunt? What are your goals with your dog? All these things. Right. And then what I believe my job is, is, is to one match you up with the right litter. That's first and foremost. Um, because, you know, if you, if you only hunt, you know, once a year and you want the dog to take you know, pontoon rides with you and be a, a companion and you're, you know, 80 years old and look, you know, just wanting to slow things down. Like you don't want that, you know, fire with fire breeding, right? You want a dog that's, that's fit for that. But then inside the litter, there's going to be very little tendencies and, and, and tweaks from each puppy to puppy. It's not going to be big. Like if you were, if you were like, Hey, I get picked a litter. How do I pick? Honestly, if you, if you're getting a male, just get the boys together, close your eyes and pick one up because you're not going to be able to tell just by showing up at the breeder and just being like, Hey, you know, I, I want to spend time with it. Um, what we do is we have Whitney pick the puppy because she's with them literally every single day from the time they're born to the time they go home. And that is the only person that can tell you truly what puppy has what tendency, who's the most dominant, who's the most submissive, who carries things around all the time, who, you know, and um, a quick little story that I like to tell with this and, and it kind of reiterates this fact is that we had a, uh, uh, now a friend of ours, but a client of ours at the time that she works over at the University of Minnesota in the veterinary care department. And, um, you know, she was going to get this puppy and she wanted this dog to do um, therapy work. So like go into hospitals, um, you know, be with sick kids, do that kind of stuff. And so she wanted the most submissive puppy or the calmest puppy, you know, uh, in the litter. So she came out every day after work, did what she had, uh, she called an aptitude test where she did all this testing with all these puppies, you know, from, I think the time from, they were like five weeks to seven weeks every day. And, uh, I, I kept my distance. I was respectful of her, did her thing. Cause I was really interested in it myself. And, uh, she got to about two, three days before the puppy goes home. And I just pulled in, I was training off site, pulled in uh, with my trailer, parked and was going in the office for something. And she was like, Hey Josh, can I get your opinion on something? And I was like, Oh, oh my gosh. Like I've been waiting for this just cause I'm so interested in what she's doing. So I go over there and she's like, yeah, I, I you know what I'm looking for? I think I know which puppy it is. You know, we have little colored collars on each of the puppies, especially when you have a litter of black labs. Like you got to keep them all, yeah. all apart, you know, so you know who's who. Um, and she's like, I think the puppy that's best fit for me is purple collar. And the, the reason is, is that every time I'm here, you know, he's hanging out, sleeping in the corner. He'll come kind of just like curl up in my lap. Like he's just, he seems like super docile, super chill. And that's exactly what I need. I'm like, huh, interesting. And she's like, what do you think? And I was like, I think that's exactly a hundred percent wrong. And she like perked up and she's like, what? And I was like, well, let me tell you, I watch purple collar every single morning, wake up, and be the most dominant 
puppy that there is. <laughs> Physical, like, the time she gets and there. Sisters. And I was like, you come every day at two o'clock. And the only reason he seems like the little, you know, you know ball of a teddy bear that he is right there is because he's tired. He's tired from beating up his brothers and sisters all day. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And so the next uh, day, maybe a day or two later, because I think it was a Saturday, she came in the morning and she's like, oh, my gosh, Josh it's unbelievable, you know? And it's just like, you, yeah. so my whole point with that story is there's someone that is, has, was very, very detailed, but there's still these variables that unless you're with these puppies all the time, like Whitney is or like your yeah. breeder probably will be, that's the only person that can tell you. And so the reason I don't like the whole pick of the litter thing is that I believe the litter that I put on the ground, the differences, the difference in uh, what those puppies go to be, all depends on their environment with their owners. You know, what are the owners going to do with them? How are they going to handle them? They are products of their environment. And so the pick of the litter to me, it makes it seem like the first puppy that goes is the best and the last puppy that goes the worst. And that's not at all true. Um, you know, you've, you've talked about Rick Smith before. And Rick's a great friend of mine. And uh, one, one time I heard um, Delmer tell a story, uh, which Delmer is very, very good at doing. Um, but he was talking about Rick. And I think um, he mentioned like, you know, two champions that, uh, that Rick had. And he talked about these champions. And he goes, Rick, how did you pick those, those two puppies? And Rick was like, well, they were the last ones left over in the litter. And it's like, exactly. You know, every one of those puppies probably had the potential to go do that. But the, the environment that that puppy was in was one that offered him the opportunity to go become what he became. And so I think it's, it's so, it's so important to, to know that. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to look at it that way. Cause you know, it's, it's not a, you know, one, two, three, four, there's no way you can tell that at seven, eight weeks old. Our friends at Waltons are celebrating this month because they just launched an updated website to make shopping for all of your wild game and food processing needs so much easier. And to celebrate, they're giving away a Waltons chambered vacuum sealer, an assortment of Waltons vacuum bags, an apron, and a collection of seasoning shakers, all valued at over $1,300. The best part? They have giveaways like this each and every month. This is just one of the many ways Jonathan Tremblay and the family at Waltons try to help you make the most of your meat processing and cooking needs. They also host podcasts, live streams, and online chats in their Meatgistics University. Waltons.com has over 5,000 items on their site in stock and ready to ship the same day. From grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, seasonings, and so much more. Head to Waltons.com to sign up for their giveaway and shop from the comfort of your home or anywhere in the field. Waltons, they have everything but the meat. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. So a lot of times I've heard this saying over and over again because it's helped people. They've seen my dog. She wants to go see what's over the next hill and then the next hill and the next hill and the next hill. And she just has this motor to fly. Um, and she wants to hunt. Her prey drive is insane. And that, to me, uh, just pro 
it, it just led to a lot of challenges, you know, in, in learning how to train with her. But trainers kept telling me, you can pull a rope back, but you cannot push a rope. So they're, they're saying there is that you want to drive because you can shape that, you can work with it. Um, but a dog that does not have that drive can be a little bit more challenging to work with. I'm assuming you've seen great breed, you know, just great genetics and have dogs that have that drive, but then in the same litter, is it possible to have dogs that do not have that drive? Well, so I wish you could see me right now, Travis, because I'm smiling. Um, it, it's, it's so funny that you say that because the first thing I was going to ask you was, do you believe that you can put more drive into that dog or you can, you know, you can dictate where that goes? Because there's sometimes that people are like, gosh, like, I wish my dog would run bigger. Like, how do I get him to run bigger? And it's like, sorry, like mom and dad put that into them. Yeah. And that, that you can't teach that, you know, um, now you can pull them back, but you know, to push them out is very, very difficult. Um, and so for sure, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's no guarantees with dogs in general. There's really not. Um, actually it's really interesting. We have had a number, you know, we were very blessed to have, you know, very, very, you know, good veterinary, um, you know, circle around us, you know, very, um, renowned, you know, people in their field, specifically sporting dogs are just great, great people. We're very lucky to have them um, as friends and can go to every one of those people have urged us and told us we should be taking the health guarantee away from our, our, our breedings. And we're like, like, why? Like we're doing everything we can to make sure like all the, all the money that goes into testing and genetics and all stuff, like we're doing everything we can to show that we're doing like we're producing the healthiest puppies, you know, that, that we possibly can. And the answer that we've been given is yes, you are. That's why you shouldn't be giving a guarantee because you are already doing it because there's so much that goes into it. If, um, if the dog is, you know, is mishandled in a way you know, jumping off, you know, stairs or, you know, running on concrete a lot at a young age, um, or blacktop, like on an x-ray could look like hip dysplasia or look like elbow issues. It wasn't, it's not a genetic thing. It's an injury, but it, it can, it can come up that way. And, you know, there is absolutely no 100% guarantee in dogs ever or, or animals ever for that matter. You can do everything right and something still goes wrong. And so, you know, to your, your, your point or your question, um, you know, sure can, you know, you, you can have a dog, you can have a litter that's all crazy, crazy, crazy driven, and then have one that just doesn't, it doesn't happen often. Um, I would say it has more to do with how the dogs are handled. You know, I mean, as an early stage puppy, you got to let them be a puppy. You know, you're not trying to, to make that dog be steady and, you know, scold them for doing everything wrong when they're, you know, 10 weeks old. You know, you're trying to build a, a confident bull puppy because you can do something with a confident bull puppy. You can't with a dog that is nervous and scared and doesn't want to go do things and, wrong, you know, nervous, make the wrong step. So we want to build up. We want to take these, these puppies, you know, but it, it starts with that puppy. It starts with the right genetics. You know, I like to, you know, you have the saying that, um, you know, you could give me the water boy of the team and say, Hey, you've got eight months to work with him every day. But at the end of that eight months, he has to be able to beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. Never going to happen. Right. Never going to happen because that the water boy isn't built for it. Right. It's not in who he is. You know, so that's where the puppy part comes into play. Like you have to do your homework right away. You know, we have a lot of people that will, will call in and be like, Hey, 
you know, I, I'd like to get my dog trained. You know, I, I thought you know, I'd save money on the puppy and put it into training and it doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, you have to have the, the dog to work with first. So you've got the dog and you've got a puppy at home. At what point do you encourage people to start training with that dog? Yeah, well, I think um, training right away, but we need to define what that training is. You know, when I say training, it's not, um, you know, start trying to you know, do, you know, heel sit, come on a lead and, you know, giving them a, a correction on that lead. What I mean is, is the training and sometimes we don't even look at it as training, right? Socialization is training. You know, we, we may not look at it as a training session, but socializing a puppy is training. Uh, crate training, right? Putting the puppy in the crate, getting, getting them used to that, you know, uh, getting them desensitized to being in there, getting them toward the, where they enjoy being in there. That's very, very important. Um, you know, all these things you can start treat training, start teaching these little commands, right? Start teaching what sit is, or teaching what come is, give them that reward. Um, you can do all that stuff early on. And why that's so important is because if we look forward to any goal or aspiration that we have, um, let's just say we're out in South Dakota on a pheasant hunt and, you know, we're going to be with all of our buddies, right? Like that's what we're going towards. But if we don't socialize this puppy now, and, you know, this dog is maybe either afraid or gets aggressive towards other dogs. Like, how can we go home with all of our buddies, right? If we go stay in a hotel room where the dog is anxious and nervous because they don't know where they are, and then we put them in a crate, but they've never been in the crate or doesn't, don't use the crate at home, now all of a sudden there's this anxiousness and the dog gets stressed out and it leads into all these other issues. It's like all this stuff starts now, even though we're looking towards the end goal, you know, it's now and, and there's little things to do along the way. No, we're not trying to prepare for the ACTs as a preschooler, but there are things we're going to teach that ultimately lead to that. And the, the crate, just this is something that I've touched on a few episodes ago. The crate is not to be ever used as a punishment for a dog. The crate is a safe place for your dog. And it's a place that they know as theirs, that they shouldn't, you shouldn't feel bad about having them in the crate. I mean, canines outside of our houses in the wild world live in dens, you know, so this is normal. And that's why I've, I've heard from a lot of people, you know, the importance of the crate. And then somebody sees a dog in a, in a crate and they think, oh, the poor dog is in this. No, that's, that's a safe spot, you know, so, um, my dog doesn't go in her crate as a punishment ever. I mean, I, I can correct her on something, but it's not we're sending her into the into the crate. And that was a valuable lesson I learned early on. And now, you know, I mean, that's that's a, a spot she enjoys going to and there's no problem with it. Yeah, well, well, think about the consistency that your crate can provide for your dog, right? Like if, if that's the safe place, if that's my, my positive area that is my spot, um, traveling becomes that much less stressful because they're comfortable. Um, it becomes that much safer, right? Because it's by far the safest place for a dog to travel, especially if you have, you know, like, you know, like a lucky duck kennel or so there's, there's kennels out there that are extremely well rated, you know, for, you know, even crash tests. Like it is the safest place for your dog, you know, to travel. Um, it adds consistency and comfortability for your dog, you know, in different scenarios, different setups. Um, you know, like when we go to shows, you know, like pheasant fast, I have a crate in the booth. And we do our deal and I put, you know, I put my dog in their crate. If they had to sit out for the whole show all day and with all the people petting them and all the dogs and all the back and forth, 
I mean, that can be a, a stressful environment. And so to put the dog to a point that's like, hey, this is your spot. You know, you can feel comfortable. You can go to sleep. You can relax. That's a huge deal. Yeah. D- uh, Daisy and I were, we were at Game Fair for a couple of days last summer. And that's like her first public appearance that she made. And there's hundreds and hundreds of dogs and she wants to go and go and everybody, I mean, she, lo- she loves everybody. So she wants to go meet them. And I'm constantly, you know, like, you know, like here, here, you know, and at the end of the day, she crashed so hard. She was so mentally exhausted from all the people. She never got further than two feet from my right leg, but yet she was exhausted at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a crate. I was so wish I had a spot. We'd be like, here you go. You can relax for a little bit, you know? So, okay. So you've got a crate. I mean, I think there's a lot of information out there about, you know, don't get a crate that's too large. You don't want your dog to pee in the crate. Um, you know, like what's your, what's a quick recommendation or a quick guide for puppies and crate size? Yeah. So spot on. I think too often people think that the dog has to like literally live in the crate as far as it has to be able to, you know, stand up and move around and how crazy it is. Well, we fly dogs in from overseas, the crates that they have to be in, you know, they, they have to be that they have to be able to stand up, move around. I mean, I swear you could, you could ship a horse in the crate that these (laughs) dogs come in. I'm like, why why do you need this? Um, Smaller is actually better. You know, and if you ever watch a dog in a crate, like, very rarely are they like sprawled out using the entire crate and like legs all over the place. Like they curl up in a corner Uh and they like to be touching something. Right. I mean, that's, that's how naturally that's how they feel comfortable. And so you don't want one that's crazy big, smaller is better. And especially as your crate training, like you'd mentioned, um, if it's too big, what the dog will naturally do is use one end of the crate as you know, bathroom time and the other end of the crate to quote unquote live in because Uh, especially an intelligent dog, but most dogs, they don't want to live in their own soil, right? So they don't want to mess and then lay in it and live in it. I mean, that's just not naturally what most dogs want to do. So they'll, they'll go in one side and, and then live in the other. And so by making that smaller, you can actually expedite and make your crate, your potty training in the house that much easier because you can go from the crate, take them, pick them up so that they don't have time in between the crate and the front door to go to the bathroom, but pick them up, bring them right outside, let them do their business, praise them like crazy and let them understand, Hey, this is right. This is what we want you to be doing. Um, it, it, it really expedites that process that a lot of people struggle with. All right. So, um, now we're, let's get to the training process. Just a quick question. Now that you, I know you've trained pointing breeds and flushing breeds, which one would you say is easier to train? Is is a a flusher easier to train than a pointer? Okay, so th- there's a couple layers to this because it's uh I think it's a little bit of both. Okay, so um I think that a pointer is on the front end easier to train because so much of it is natural, right? Like you don't teach a point the dog either points because genetics tell the dog to point or they don't. Um, and so I think on the front end, you know, that, you know, that pointer is easier because you're leaning almost solely on natural you know, talent. Um, a flusher, there's a lot more that you're really trying to work on as far as like, okay, you can only run, you know, 15 yards ahead of me and you have to stay in here and, you know, here's how you go back and forth. And of course, from there, then it's the natural ability kind of kicks over. Um, I think when you get into more of the advanced stages, as far as, you know, like, uh, like my advanced stages on both end is a pointer that is steady through wing shot and fall 
versus a retriever that is running blind retrieves and you know taking casts. I think the the retriever is the more difficult finished dog to get to because with the with the pointer you're still leaning on that that dog is looking at that bird has all those instincts going and then we start reining this in right we start letting them know you can't break on the flush you have to stay you know still you have to now if you start saying now that dog has to retrieve now that gets more difficult for some dogs because some dogs like you know the dogs i field trialed which were you know pointers and and setters a lot of those dogs had no interest in retrieving. And I was okay with that because that's not your job. Mm-hmm. Your job is to point and find the birds. And uh, and that was just my opinion on it. So, um, you know, you start having a dog, you start trying to make a dog retrieve that doesn't want to retrieve. Now that's way more difficult. Where with a retriever, think how crazy this is. For a retriever, run a blind retrieve. We have to, I have to line you up, point you in a direction. It could be a thousand acre field. And there's nothing, you, have, you know, nothing about that area. I'm going to line you up, say back, and you're supposed to run enthusiastically in that straight direction <laughs> and t- into the middle of nowhere until you hear a whistle and then turn to look at me and then follow my hand to which way I want you to go. Run blindly, excitedly that way, right? It's like yeah. there is no natural part of a dog that wants to do that. Okay. So, so that's why I appreciate that part of it so much. Yeah. So speaking of not being natural, I know that there. I've heard this time and again, and I know you've heard it too, but- do you get people that say, can you teach my lab to point? And, and what do you say? I mean, is it doable? Because I know people that say my lab points and I'm like, okay, let's go hunt. You know, like I want to see it. I want to, you know, like it, there could be like a, a hesitation before that lab jumps in there and flushes a bird. But I wouldn't call that a point. I would call a dog that just freezes and doesn't move until you give it the command to move. Like that's a solid point in my opinion. So can you treat or can you teach a flushing dog to point? No. I mean, it's just straight up no. I mean, you just can't. I mean, that that point is an instinct, right? And these dogs have been bred for hundreds of years to do this. And and even if, okay, so I have, I have a little yellow female named Sage. And Sage will occasionally, like, what breed is just, she? stop she's a lab she's okay. a british lab actually out yeah. of our breeding um and there's there's times that she'll just hammer and she'll lock up and she'll stop and, and she'll look and then when you know we get up there she'll jump in and flush the bird i'm not calling her a pointer right i'm not calling her a pointing lab i'm not calling her any of that stuff because it's not a point right like when you watch a true pointing dog do their thing first off it is magical. It is something so unique to watch this dog go from literally, I mean, as fast as your dog can run to a complete stone statue, yet have the full intensity, yet have the composure to stand still. I mean, there is so much to that that makes that so special. A dog that that stops or just hesitates, one, is that's not a point, right? Mm-hmm. Two, that, that, again, is not something that you're going to teach. Now, could you potentially teach a dog to, you know, to stop and sit down on scent? Sure. I don't know why you would want to, you know, I mean, there might be a, a very specific, extremely specific situation out there where someone would want to teach that. And it would take a ton of time, a ton of work and a ton of control to get that to be done. But that's also not a point, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, and you know, we oftentimes will get, you know, people that will call, they might have a short hair, uh, a pointer, a Brittany, a, a true pointing breed, right? Yep. And say, you know, my, my dog doesn't point. I need him to come in and get trained how to do it. And it's like, 
that's not happening either. You know, I mean, that's genetics. That is what your your dog's mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, great grandpa, great grandpa. That it's it's in that puppy. It's in that dog. And like we talked about earlier on, I mean, when when you watch when you watch a little pointer puppy that there's a butterfly that lands in the yard and it points and it locks up and it like it freezes, right? It, that is a true point. That puppy has no idea why he's doing it. Not a clue. It's just something in his DNA and his body saying, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, it's, incredible. It's, it's fascinating for sure. Okay. It so is. you got a puppy and the foundation training begins. Where do we start? How do you start? Uh, you mean with, uh, like with the foundation? Yep. Oh, sorry. So with, you know, with the, with the foundation, you know, one of the things that, that yeah, I always look at is your foundation is your obedience. You know, that's, that's what your foundation is. Yep. And so when you look at your foundation, you know, your, your basic commands, you know, your, your, you know, for pointing dogs or I'm for retrievers sit. Um, I don't know how you guys operate. I've, I never teach my pointing dogs to sit. Um, yeah, so you're not the first, you're not the first person to say that, you know, if I say Daisy, she's sitting right here. Whoa. She just stands there. I don't want her to sit because you don't want your dog to sit on a bird out in the field. And that's, that's the main reason for it too. So when, um, I don't, I don't, I learned this years ago. Don't ask a pointing someone else's dog to sit, which I now have a pointer and everyone's like, sit Daisy, sit, you know? And so my kids taught her how to do that, but I did not encourage it so my dog will do it fortunately she hasn't sat in the field at all she cares too much about that bird (laughs) to do that right but yes yes so you teach uh, a flusher to sit and a pointer to stay right and and then from there you know like for us it's you know heel um which you know for our, our retrievers especially we always heal on the opposite side that we shoot uh, especially if you're in a waterfall situation or, or a, a drive situation for upland hunters where your dog is sitting at your side or staying at your side yep. you know if you're a right-handed shooter and your dog's on your left-hand side your shells are ejecting away from the dog so it's not hitting the dog and it always knows or distracting them with you know uh, empty cartridges flying by them um the other thing is that more times than not, like when people are walking along a road if we're, if this is why I always defer to left, if I, if someone doesn't have a preference, if you're walking against traffic, like we're supposed to, if the dog is on the left, he's in the ditch rather than in the road. And so it's just a safer place, you know, for the dog to be, um, recall, you know, so honestly, I don't care if people use come or here, just stay consistent with it. Um, you know, we, we like to use place a lot. Your know, place would be, you know, to get on whatever we're asking to get on, whether it's a board, a stand, a dog bed, something like that, that ends up being probably the number one uh, command that people love to use in the house, you know, cause how great is it that when people come over, I tell my dog to place and he doesn't leave that bed. You know I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's just a, a great, you know, command for in the house, um, you know, kennel. I mean, we could keep going on and on, but just like, you need to have this foundation done and you need to have, you know, this where this is, this is the boring stuff. It's not fun, but everything you do from here forward is going to be, you know, is going to be off of this. And so it has to be done really, really well. Do you start, you know, this is, this is an important step too, that, um, I learned right away is like George Lyle calls it sacking, you know, like you sack the horse, you do this with the dog. You just want to rub your hands and, and it's a, uh, calming touch, you know, to get that dog comfortable that you're always able to touch and work with that dog. Um, it knows its place in the pack, if you will. But do you do that with a, uh, flushing 
reads as well. Mm -hmm, for sure. And we really do them at two different points. So, uh, so the sacking out, um, I think that everyone that has ever heard of that or has, has done that, um, it, it stems from Delmer. And, uh, and Delmer was as talented of a horse trainer that he was a, dog uh, a dog trainer. Huh. And so I think naturally it just came from that. One of the, not, I won't tell too much stories here, but a, a cool story that, um, Delmer told me is how he used an e-collar to teach roping horses, how to back up after, you know, after the, the cowboy, you know, gets off the horse. I mean, really kind of cool stuff. He got really creative with, with some of those things, but, um, the sacking out, you know, where I learned it was from him and his thing was you do it as a puppy to teach the dog everywhere that, that, that puppy's body is, you know, at some point you are going to need, or you're going to need them to submit to you. So, um, you know, like their toes, like how many people struggle with clipping toenails? Like that's a big one. Right. Um, you take the dog to a vet, like the vet needs to be able to check the puppy out or check the dog out eventually. Uh, so that we can tell if you're healthy, like you're going to have to submit all your body to, you can't be protective or defensive around it. So you do it from an, a puppy on, it's a big deal. Um, the other point of the training that we use it a lot in is through our train retrieve, which, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, call it force fetching. I don't call it force fetching because, um, my method is, is not as not really forceful like that is, you know, like the force fetching is, you know, heavy pressure, very forceful. The train retrieve is a lot more teaching is a lot more, you know, kind of baby steps, step by step. Um, but, we do it there every single time we get on the table, just so we're on the same page. It's like, Hey, we're going to go through this. It's going to be great. You can trust me. Calm down. Everything's awesome. Like it's, it's amazing what just touching a dog all over their body in a very calm and slow demeanor. Um, it really helps just let that dog take a breath and accept, you know, the, the session. How old are they when you start? Um, day, day as far as, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Day one. Yeah. I mean, you, know, because here's the, the thing is like, even if you bring a puppy home and you're like, Hey, I'm going to let him be a puppy for about a month and then we'll start on it. And that, that puppy from day one is learning. Now they're either learning bad things or positive things. And so it's your job and your role to keep them on the right path. It's amazing how often you, know, we do our burning gun introduction. We have you know, puppies come in for that at five months old it is amazing how often people you know, come and they're like, man, like I didn't want to screw anything up. So I didn't do anything. <laughs> and it's like, well, you, you did something, you don't realize it, but you yeah. did something. Um, you, you know, made so bad it, habits. It really okay. Good. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that's and exactly to, to most people's defense, they just don't know that they made bad habits. Okay. You know, I think the average exactly, dog owner, exactly. I would say a hunter that has a dog that wants to hunt with that dog invests. And I, I'm, you know, I could be completely wrong here, but this is just what I've seen. A hunter tends to invest a lot of their own time into understanding the dog that they're getting and then wanting to invest in it and train with it and then teach that dog more so than some that's just getting a house dog, a family dog, because they just are like, well, part of the family. Okay, here you go, dog. You're in the house. Now you're running around. And then they're constantly versus telling the dog what you can do. They're telling the dog, no, you can't do this. And, um, and I'm, just, I'm just amazed at the behavior of hunting dogs in relation to family dogs. Would you, is that an accurate observation? I think that's a spot on evaluation. You know, think about, so anyone that's listening, just kind of think about 
you know, the dogs that you know immediately in your life, you know, the dogs that are hunting or sporting dogs, they have to be hunting, but you're sporting dogs, um, and the dogs that are at-home family members, right? Think about the quality of life that each one of those dogs has. And, you know, part of it for us is that, you know, we, we know that we have to take an active role into, you know, working with our dogs so that they can go be successful, be safe, be under control, do all these things, right? We have to teach. You don't have to normally teach a dog that is an at-home dog much of anything, right? You, you should do obedience, but when you really don't have a goal that you're working towards, it's easy to be like, oh, we'll do that tomorrow. Oh, we'll do that another day. And you just keep pushing it off. Yeah. With, with a sporting dog, it's like, hey, you know, guess what? Come October 15th, pheasant season's here Get and on. we need to be ready by then. Yeah. And so it kind of gives you that, that carrot that you're, you're reaching for. Right. Yep. And you just look at like the, the gun dogs. I know they're more under control. They're more understanding. They have a purpose in life. I mean, there's so many things that, that, that dog has versus the dog that just lays at home every day. I mean, those dogs are oftentimes anxious because they don't have a purpose that they know of in life. They're looking for something to, to you know, exert this energy out into and they don't have it. And then on top of it, they have you know, owners that, you know, naturally, and this isn't a diss on them, but it's just the truth. They have other things that they prioritize in their life and the dog is just living in their world. And, and so I think it's a spot on evaluation. That's why I, it boggles my mind when, you know, people want to kind of knock on hunting dogs of like, this is a, a negative thing in any way. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. So how long does the foundation take for you? I mean, I know it's something you go back to for the life of the dog, but like when you're working on foundation with, with the retriever, um, how long do you expect that to take? Yeah. So the answer I like to give here is as long as it takes. And yeah. the reason that, that I say that is because um, every dog is different. Sure. Every person is different. And so, I mean, if you have someone that, you know, works five, six days a week and has, you know, you know, dance at night with the daughter and little league at night with the son and like you're strapped on time, I get it. Like, I know you're still going to work with the dog, but you may take longer than the person that, you know, has the life and flexibility to work with their dog every day, right? Consistency is a huge part of this consistency and repetition. And so it really depends. I mean, you know, for us at the kennel, um, when dogs come in for us and what we'd call our foundation training, it's about three months, you know, three months, but that's every day. And that's with the tools and the knowledge and everything that we have. Um, you know, for someone that is doing this on their own, you know, it might be, you know, it might be, you know, two months, it might be two years. You know, you really don't know. Um, you know, but part of this too is, is when you start, like we talked about, like you got to let the puppy be a puppy, but at some point, like I really like to target that like seven, eight, some seven to eight month mark of like, like you really got to be digging into it now. You know, you really have to be because you, you're getting into that teenage year that either he's going to start pushing you around or we're going to be under control. And so you, if you haven't done it by that point, you really have to start getting on it and start getting ahead of it. Um, but yeah, it really depends. And, and for me, I know this is somewhat controversial, but I'm very open about this. Um, I never hunt my dogs their first year. That first season, I never hunt them. And the reason is, uh, now keep in mind, I'm, I'm much more waterfall specific myself. Um, but I think there's too many things like when you're not done with training, 
and the dog is still learning, they're still, when you start putting your dog into these uncontrolled situations, there's too much that can happen. You know, so like for me in a waterfall situation, if I don't have my dog completely steady, but I bring him out hunting, well, of course he's going to break. And if he breaks there, he's going to want to continue to break, which now I've caused an issue. If I just take that extra year, iron them out, give them more repetition. Now we are really solid. Now I can put them into that uncontrolled situation, knowing they're over-prepared. Um, so, yeah, and that's just me. And I understand not everybody has, you know, I think I have 12 dogs you know, now. So not, <laughs> yeah. not, not everybody has you know, that. Uh, so it's easier for me to say, hey, you're going to set out and make sure that you're, you're really solid before you go into the game. Um, you know, but you know, I think it's something to think about, you know, just know the repercussions that it, that it could have putting your dog in the field when they're not done. And then, you know, when you come back next training season, you know, just know that. Right. I think a lot of hunters, Josh, are are in the category of like, they want to have a great dog. It's a family dog and they might get out, you know, eight, 10 times a year, might do one nice long hunting trip out West. And that's kind of their, their season. And so they don't, their expectations aren't, you know, like field trial, you know, hunting champ or anything like that. Um, and so they, they, they don't necessarily, they'll, they're willing to risk some of those things like hunting the dog the first year um, without realizing the full impact of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll share an example with you. Um, my dog, you know, Daisy, she has all the potential in the world and is on, you know, fast track to being just a rock star out there. And I got some wisdom from some, some hunters that had dogs that, you know, 40 years of training pointing breeds. And they said, don't hunt that dog with the flusher. Don't take that dog out in the field with other dogs your first year. You're going to ruin her. You're going to ruin her. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, I, I want to hunt with my dog. I produce TV shows. I'm on the road, you know, quite a bit in the fall. I hunt with strangers almost every day and their dogs. I'm not going to leave my dog at home because I want to take her. Okay. So that's me just saying, I'm making this decision. I can see now, after going through it, the results of my actions with my dog, because this this dog that has so much potential is locking up on point and doing exactly what she's supposed to do, and here comes a flushing dog right up alongside her, bumps her off point, and flushes the birds. This happens multiple times, and now my dog thinks she's a flusher, and she starts breaking point because she's thinking, this is what I'm supposed to do. And now I look back on this situation and say, if I had a more mature dog ready for this to happen, you know, um, it may not have involved, not like right now, the end of last season when I wasn't filming or in the field, like I was working with my dog a lot, a lot to try to get rid of those bad habits that she created. And again, that was just an immature dog going into experiences that I put her in that cost that. So that's, that's an example on my side, but that's the reality of how we can influence our dogs out in the field, good and bad, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spot on. Well, but Travis, the big thing that you did is, is you identified and owned it, right? Like, and you know that you have work ahead of you, you know, this year to, you know, overcome some of that and get back on the right track, right? Yeah. I think, I think as long as you know that, you're going to be good with it because you were able to watch those situations, you know, through the right lens. Sometimes I feel like when we get our dogs in the field and, you know, we're having a good time with our buddies and, you know, we're in the moment, 
sometimes it's hard to really not only see, but then grasp the significance of some of those situations. And then the questions are like, why is my dog doing this? Or why, why, why do we have this bad habit all of a sudden? And sometimes you, when you ask yourselves those questions, when you don't have answers, that's where it can be frustrating, you know? And so, um, I totally get it. I talked to so many people about not hunting, you know, your dog your first year and people are very honest with me. They're like, Josh, this is not going to happen. <laughs> you yeah, know, like I'm, yeah. I'm going to hunt my dog your first year and like, totally get it. Totally get it. All that I'm going to ask is that you just keep in mind, you know, these types of things, you know, and if you start seeing big train wrecks, you got to be able to pull the plug. And if you start seeing, you know, your, your buddy's dog, you know, ripping birds out of your dog's mouth or blowing past your dog on point or like you just have to have the wherewithal to say hey this isn't right i gotta back out of here and uh and you know, put put my dog in a better situation but it is tough you know i mean you, it, it's hunting season right like this is what you 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 look forward to this all year and you want to be out there you want to be out there with your dog but you know these young dogs are just so impressionable and so it's just it's it's good things that at least talk about and at least you know, kind of think about as you go out in the field yeah, and it's led to more open dialogue for other hunters. I've kind of explained to them, you know, here's what my dog's doing and here's why I may pull her back or keep her out of this hunt or whatever it might be. And we just kind of talk through the scenarios a little bit more. And, you know, as as she progresses and matures, I, I anticipate being able to put her into those situations that um, she can understand, you know, that she needs to stay put and, and hold her point, but she's, she's still learning just like I am. And that's why it's fun to have these conversations with people like you and with, you know, a, a lot of my friends and, and just to kind of like, we've all been there, you know, like it's, this is normal stuff that we're working through together and they can look at their dog this, you know, and say, well, here's where I'm struggling. What do you think about this? And so, uh, you know, having a mentor has always been something that I tell people is very important. Find somebody that you trust, that you that you can bounce off ideas and say, you know, what can I expect at this point and along the way? And so that you're not crazy for thinking my dog is never going to be a good hunter and I'm never going to get there because you will. You just need to see it through. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I talk about the Onyx Hunt app every week. That's simply because I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the land that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. If you've used it yourself, then you know that the Onyx app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state-owned land, federal lands, and walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during the hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in the fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx Maps give you, and these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kombucha. Nutrisource Kombucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha, is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kombucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, 
beef, and chicken and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Um, so at what point do you consider a dog, you know, leaving the foundation stage and heading into the intermediate stage? Mm-hmm. Well, really when, yeah, I, I was kind of look at it in steps, right? So for me, you got to have a dog that is, is really, really solid with their obedience, right? Like on lead, off lead, they're really solid. You feel really good, not only in your front yard or your backyard, which is where most of us train, right? But in new situations, you can take them on a walk, you can take them in the field and you know that they're going to be under control. Um, that's a big piece of it. Then also we have to have a burning gun introduction done, right? Because we, we don't want to get all the way through the end of all this training and uh, not know if we have a dog that is great with birds and guns. We want that done early on. And so, you know, birding gun is, is also a big piece of that too, is really making sure that we've introduced our dog to birds properly, which I feel like oftentimes is overlooked. Can you explain birds how you a introduce a dog to birds? Yeah, for sure. So um, it, it's it's all about, it's kind of a step-by-step, you know, confident confidence builder right and so what we want to do is you want to make this really fun for the dogs you know so we're, we're going to start with something um yeah depending on the dog right but we'll, let's just go through the whole gamut we'll start with something as simple as a wing you know kind of you know pop, 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 you know toss it a little bit let them go over to it smell it you know pick it up and you know and of course this is not for a pointing breed you know this is for a flushing or retrieving breed you know, we want something that is very manageable and easy for them to pick up, right? That's the first step. Then we'll move to a dead bird doing the same thing. And then we'll move to a clip wing bird. Right? Again, for a flushing dog, you know, we want that dog to see that pop, 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 and see that, that bird trying to get away. We want that prey drive to peak. We want them to want to go after and go get that bird. Um, that's really, really important. Now, for a pointing dog, it's the exact opposite. Like, we do not want them catching that bird because if they catch that bird, now they're going to want to catch it again. And so, um, you know, kind of, you know, two very different avenues there, but the big thing in, in this is confidence. We want to peak, you know, bring out that, that genetic you know, instinct. We want them to, you know, that, that drive to really pop out of them. We want them to love this. I mean, really you want this to be where you watch the light bulb go off or on rather. And you go, Oh my gosh, like my dog understands why they were put on this, this earth. That is an extremely impactful moment. When you watch that happen, it's like, oh my gosh. It's cool to and see then, the light switch turn on for a puppy. It is so oh, cool to watch. Oh. You know, th- think about that. I mean, if if every person had that moment in their life, where, this is what I was put on this earth to do. I mean, that that's, that's incredible, right? Yeah. So to be able to watch it in a dog is really fun. Um and so, yeah, again, it's just building that confidence, you know, building that desire, building that drive, but we don't want it to be the first time that, that a, a dog sees a bird is, you know, that pheasant that got winged and they run up to that rooster and they get spurred or flapped in the face. I mean, that's, that's not a good positive first experience. Um, you know, we like pigeons because pigeons are uh, of a size that is very manageable. They have a wing beat that is not not overly intimidating. Uh, you'd think a quail being smaller is oftentimes better because they're smaller, but they have a very violent wing beat that can kind of back dogs off once in a while. So we, it's all about confidence building. Build that confidence. Build that confidence. Gotcha. 
And then when do you, or how do you like to go about introducing the gunshot? Yeah. So I, I do it a little differently. Um, you know, so a lot of times, like, you know, when I was learning from guys, what we would do is we'd go through the bird piece of it and then we would, you know, bring in the gun and we'd have a gunner out a long ways. We'd shoot and we'd just gradually move in as, you know, that dog was distracted, move in, move in, move in until you're shooting right over the dog. Um, and, and that worked great, uh, for the dogs to work great for if, if anything went wrong, and the dog all of a sudden like noticed the shot. And again, in, for us in a professional situation, in the back of our heads, we never know. Did this dog have a bad experience with fireworks? Did this dog have you know, the, the lawnmower backfire in the yard? Like we don't know. It's, it's not gun shyness. It's noise shyness. It could be anything that, that caused that dog to be fearful of a loud noise. So we always have to play it safe. And so what we do, uh, which is a little unique, is we take the birds away during the burning gun intro. And the reason we do that is because if we, uh, if we have any kind of an issue with the noise, we don't want the, the dog staring at that bird when it happens. To associate you know, it with the bird act, at all. That's, that's exactly it. You know, we, we don't want to take the thing that we should have this dog loving more than anything else. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a second. And when I look at this, that, that noise I don't like happens. So now I want to shy away from birds. You know, we, we don't want that. And so we take it, we take the gun away. Um, we have a process that we do to make sure that, um, that, you know, that, that dog is desensitized you know, to that gun properly. Um, but that's kind of the, the big note on that is, is, you know, just making sure we separate that because we do not want in any way that bird to be a negative association. How, how, you know, of all the dogs that you've trained, I mean, what percentage are gun shy? Can you say like there's a 5% chance that your dog will be gun shy or 10% or, you know, like just what are the odds? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it really, yeah, it's really the, the people and how they were you know, brought up, right? Because there's not a dog on this planet that was ever born gun shy. Right. Like that, that's a, it's a human fault. It's a human error. And, and sometimes I, I shouldn't even say fault because sometimes that's, that, that comes across as aggressive. Um, the number of, of dogs that we have seen that are gun shy, that is because, you know, the neighbor lit off a firework that they weren't expecting at the cabin on 4th of July. You know, it's like, it, it, I feel so much for those people because yeah. that's a huge situation that we now have to overcome that was not a fault of their own. They didn't know it was going to happen. They were doing everything right. They were playing with their dog in the front yard, but it's a, a super unfortunate situation that now we're tasked with getting over. Um, and so really for us, it, the sad thing is like July 5th, 6th, 7th, that's when our phone rings off the hook with really? this, you know, because like yeah. people, oh, they get so, you know, naturally stuff like this happens yep. and people get nervous and they're like, oh my gosh, like, did I just ruin my dog? Did, yeah. And it's a, it's a tough situation, but, um, you know, avoiding it and really making sure that those noises are introduced properly, it, it's, it's the best you know way to do it. Um. Yeah, and then you know, just just making everything a positive. Again, we talked about you know, a while back. You know, you know, producing that bold, confident puppy, and that's really what we're doing here too. What do you do in that circumstance? I mean, I, I know that's probably a topic in itself, but what do you do when a dog is gun shy? Yeah, it's, the the first thing is we try to evaluate and get inside the dog's head, right? So for like, what are you thinking? Like, what are you scared of, right? Is it the noise itself? Was it like, we, we know when someone met, when somebody screwed up, like the number of dogs that you'll know, become gun shy 
because someone lit off a 12 gauge over them to see if they were gun shy <laughs> yeah. is pretty incredible. I mean, it, it's comical to us and it's probably comical to most of the, the people listening, but it, it's not a normally thought thing for the average guy that is going to hunt once or twice a year. Like, you know, they just don't think of it. Yeah. And so the hard part is, okay, so what are, what is it that you're, you're scared of? Um, for some dogs, it's the sight of the gun because of the uncertainty, you know, of, of what's to come. Sometimes it is just the noise. You know, sometimes, you know, we can get dogs over it very quickly because of how much they love birds and love, you know, love that side of it. And we can use that to our advantage and build them up and then very, very, very slowly integrate that noise back into it. Um, but it's the, the big thing is getting inside you know, the dog's head. You'd be shocked at the number of dogs that come in for gun shyness that it's actually a bird shyness that was associated with the gun. And so what I mean by that is like a lot of people, they think about gun desensitization. They think about introducing the dog to the gun. And so they'll bring the dog to the gun club and work their way in, throwing a tennis ball. And they'll, you know, have, you know, the, the family, you know, shoot trap or shoot skeet or something like that and have, you know, work the dog into it. And the dog's great with the guns, but the dog's never seen a rooster before. And at seven months old, the dogs out there exploring, going, what's going on? What's going on? Oh, I smell something that's really interesting. You know, smell, smell, smell. All of a sudden, da, 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 and uh, <laughs> you know, might as well be a pterodactyl. You know, <laughs> right. Comes out of the, the brush, and uh, and the dog is going, what the heck? And backs out of there. And then all of a sudden, you know, three, four guys, boom, 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 go off, and the dog is like, I'm out. You know, <laughs> and it's doing like, this. It, 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 <laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't the guns because you had been through the gun piece of it. It was the pterodactyl. The yeah, that's right. The, the, the birds freaked him out. And then the guns lit off on top of it. And then it's like, and so w- the reason I say that is that that's why we evaluate. You know, that's why we go through um, this evaluation of like, what is it that you are actually nervous of? What is actually making you shy? Now, on a 4th of July situation, that, that's a little easier situation than you know, someone that's like, man, like, you know, we, we took him out on a pheasant hunt, excuse me, to the game farm. First bird went up, we shot, and all of a sudden I looked around and we couldn't find him and he was cowering back underneath the truck. You know, like that situation, there's a lot going on there, you know, so what is it and what's actually going on? That's always our first step. Yeah, I've heard the story multiple times, exactly what you just said. They were 10 feet behind me, didn't leave the back of my legs, and that dog Mm -hmm. never hunted again. I've heard that story Mm -hmm. multiple times. But you can get a dog through that, you're saying. We, We can, but the two things that I never guarantee... I never guarantee one that we will get through it yep. and I never guarantee a timeline in which we'll get through it because you just don't like when you're dealing with a fear, you just never know. You know, like I like to use the example of my wife, my wife, and I use my wife because I'm too Be careful here, uh, Be I, careful I'm, here. I'm masculine <laughs> but to admit that I'd be the same, yeah. <laughs> but, um, she hates snakes. Who doesn't snakes? Who like, doesn't? Oh I'm my with gosh. Her. I'm with you. We live up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, right? Yes. Um, but hates them. And uh, like tiny little gardener snake looks like a worm, hates them. And now for her, like use her in the situation of, okay, so now you're going to come in and we're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, get you over your snake shyness, right? Like that's what you're dealing with, right? You're dealing with, with a dog that has convinced himself, this is awful. This is terrible. I hate it. It scares me. I don't want anything to do with it. And now you not only need to convince them it's okay, but then in turn make them love it. Like, 
oh. to make my wife love snakes. Are you kidding me? So, you know, but yeah, that's what you're doing. This is a real story. So I was probably eight or 10 years old and I used to, after a rain, I'd go out and pick night crawlers out of the grass for bait to go fishing with, with a, with a little flashlight. And I, there were so many night crawlers out that I'm just flying. I'm just, just grabbing them like crazy, throwing them in my bucket. Like I'm all jacked. I got to go catch so many fish next morning. And I go from one night crawler to the next. And the next one I grab wraps around my hand. It was a snake. <laughs> and that's 30 years ago, Josh. And I still remember it. Like it still comes back to me once in a while. That one time when I grabbed that snake and it wrapped around, it was a cinnamon belly snake. So it looked just like the same color. Brandon, what do you, you're shaking your no, head. No, that, Dude, that, it was like, the, not a fun introduction. No. So like I, this story, you, it totally makes sense. So I understand what a bird dog is going through now. I relate because I will not, ever be able to get that terrible like that snake wrapping around my hand out of my memory it's stuck there yuck, <laughs> yuck. Brandon, Brandon, I'll, Brandon I'll give you 10 bucks if you can find a pipe cleaner and like go like really soft behind like Travis's neck or oh, like yeah. a, a future uh, office prank is coming like right now <laughs> yeah yeah future <laughs> office prank is coming he revealed his weakness he shouldn't have played that hand so yeah. oh my gosh oh not to get sidetracked but that's real life man i don't i relate to all those dogs now i get it oh yeah yeah well and and here's what's funny is that you know we um yeah, you know, I've kind of talked about before how, yeah, I think we humanize dogs when it's convenient for us to humanize dogs, right? So like we humanize dogs when, you know, we, we want them to you know, come in the house and be a part of the family and lay in bed with us and sit in the front seat and like, you know, we like to humanize them, right? I mean, that's naturally most of us do. Um, but then like all of a sudden we, we throw that out the window when it's not convenient for us, right? So like, you know, shyness like this, like when you put it in an analogy like that, it's very easy for us to understand because we humanize the situation. We go, oh my gosh, like I can see why this is an issue. You know, but if you don't look at it like that and you look at this dog that's scared of the gun, you're like, like, why are you being a wuss? Like, why, like, why is this an issue? Like, you should love to hunt. Like you're a hunting dog. You should, you know, it's not that easy, you know? And like, I, uh, yeah, it, it hit me the other day too, where, you know, like the, where again, we, we, take off the table humanizing dogs when it's not convenient for us. It's like we knock on wood. We've been extremely, um, extremely clean at the kennel. Like we, we've, you know, not had many issues at all with, you know, just, you know, viruses and things that come through like kennel cough. Kennel cough is like the dog flu. Every dog that comes in is vaccinated for it. Every dog that comes in, you know, is, is checked out and should be all good, but they could still carry something in. Like we've been very fortunate. Um, I have friends of mine that have that come through their kennel two, three times a year. And I can count this. Uh, I can count one hand the number of times we've had it in our kennel, you know, in 12 years. But we had one time a couple of years ago that it came through a dog that came from Colorado was coming back. And this is a traveling tip for anyone that travels with their dogs. Don't stop at rest areas. Don't stop at truck stops to let your dogs out because that's where everyone stops. And where does everybody let their dogs out? And all those dogs are not vaccinated. All those dogs are not cared for like your dog is. And it's the best way for your dog to pick something up. So this dog came from Colorado, stopped at rest stops the whole way, comes in the kennel five days later, coughing. Well, the, the entire kennel is infected now, right? And so like naturally, so we're have, you know, we have vets come out and we're giving antibiotics. It's, it's a, it's a mess. We let everybody know. Everybody's great with it because they understand we're doing everything we can to, to, to do this. Well, there's one person that was like, 
are you guys not taking good enough care of the dogs? And are you guys not like, you know, keeping the facility clean enough, all this stuff. I'm like, like what? You know, like yeah. you, you've seen like the, our kennel is not an average facility, like immaculately clean over the top care, like full staff of people that do nothing to care for the dogs. Like it's, it's over the top. And you know, and it hit me that next day I went to go pick up my kids from, from daycare. And I'm like, you walk into, to the daycare and there's all these signs on the door. Right. And it's like, here's what's going around this room. Here's what's going around this room. Here's what's, you know, all the whole wide, you know, whole um, center wide is like, you know, this. And it's like, well, yeah, I know when I bring my kids into an environment with a whole bunch of other kids, there's a really good chance they pick something up and they're going to get sick. And then I'm probably going to get sick. Right. It's just the way it is. And I'm like, why is that different now with the dogs? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, sure. again, going back to the humanizing part of it, it's like we humanize them when we want to humanize them. But then like you get a dog like this, that is, is in like the mental fear, like that doesn't, you don't just wave a magic wand and that goes away. You know, you don't just say, Hey, you should love this. And the dog goes, Oh, okay. I should sure. love it now. You know, yeah. it's just different. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to a trained retrieve that you call it, not force fetch, but trained retrieve, which is, I, I mean, is it the same thing? I know your process is different. So it's, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the force isn't being put on the dog, but what's your goal there? Mm-hmm. So my goal is, is the same as what a force fetch would be, which is, you know, we teach the dog what to do with their mouth. We have that good solid finish retrieve. We create a stronger bond, you know, with the dog through working excuse me, with their mouth, which is the most intimate thing that you can do with a dog because their whole life revolves around their mouth. But we do it in a way that we're not hammering on the dogs through it. Okay. So what I mean by that is like, whenever I learned from guys of how to do the force fetching, it was always the same way. It was, you applied a bunch of pressure on the dog. When you applied that pressure, you need the pressure to be enough to where the dog would open their mouth and scream, you know, because it's saying like, ow. And when they do that, you shove something in their mouth, you take the pressure off and they learn that they get something in their mouth because they need that pressure to come off. Right. To me, especially for a retriever that, uh, or any dog that wants to go retrieve, are we moving backwards a little bit by making this where this is what I love to do more than anything else. And now we're having a major repercussion, a major you know, negative association with this. And so, man, it took me years to go through this and a lot of dogs, man, I trained a lot of dogs for free, just trying to like find the best way to make this happen. And through the train retrieve, when I call it the train retrieve, I, one, I think there's such a negative association with force fetch. I don't believe many people could use that high pressure method on their own dogs. I just think, you know, these dogs are our best buddies. They're part of our family. And I mean, it can be a very forceful thing. Um, through the train retrieve, we're going to teach how to use your mouth. We're going to teach you, you know, this is how we want you to hold something. We're going to teach you, you know, that basically you're playing T-ball, right? Like we, before this, like you're, you're doing this because you love to do it because something in your DNA tells you you should be doing it. But we need to start putting rules around the game. We need to start saying, Hey, instead of just running the bases, like you need to stop at first because the guy second has the ball, right? Yep. That's what this is. Like you don't get to retrieve halfway back anymore and just drop it. You need to finish that retrieve, come to my side and have that good hold until I tell you to drop, right? Um, if I tell you to fetch, like we're actually teaching you what fetch is, not a bird fell, your dog runs over to it and your dog doesn't know, but you yell, fetch him up, fetch him up, fetch him up. Well, if you haven't actually taught your dog how to use their mouth and what fetch is, you might as well be yelling refrigerator, you know, because the dog <laughs> has no idea what it is you're talking about. Yeah. And so you can, know, can it's, you it's describe, a teaching process. Can you describe what that 
process looks like? Uh, uh, not without taking another hour <laughs> of doing it. But <laughs> yeah, I suppose the the, the idea though yeah. is um is you know teaching you know like really taking your time yeah like will this process take longer than you know and because I force fetch too I mean I I did that a number of years because that's what the way I was taught you know I, I learned how to do it that way and so it took me a long time to get this process but I love this process because we don't get the dogs that are like you're know, ducking their heads or, you know, like when I, we tell them to fetch, like you don't see the ears go back and the head go down, you know, they eagerly do it. They still know what they're supposed to be doing, but they eagerly do it. Um, you know, and it, it, it is a process. It's a long process. So I won't dig too much into it, but it's something that I believe the process that I've laid out in retriever roadmap, I think anybody can do with their own dog. Um, will it take more time than an old school forest fetch? Yes. Absolutely well, um, but I think um, the end result is one that I think people are are, are really happy with. Um, what actually kind of led me to to exploring some of this is I had a great uh, mentor of mine. He's retired now, but great guy, great retriever trainer, very successful. You know, he told me that um, that he the force fetch was the only part of the training process that he wouldn't allow a owner to watch. And it was because like, it just, it looked brutal, right? I mean, just because there was so much pressure you're putting on the dog. And uh, that was my first why. And I remember talking to him about it one night and uh, I'm like, man, like it just kind of bothers me. You know, it's like, you know, like I get why you're saying that. You know, I get that like someone would have an issue with this. You, you know, like they, they wouldn't like what they're seeing. Um, and I get it. I really do. And, but, but like, can't there be a better way? And I remember he was like, Josh, he's like, if there's a better way, you're the one to find it because I'm too set in my ways now. I've been doing this for too long. Like, I'm not going to change. But someone like yourself, like, you might be able to do it. He was the first person I called when uh, when I had this process done. And uh, he's he's probably been one of my biggest fans, you know, through this whole thing, too, because he's just been so supportive. And, um, you know, it, it's really kind of been a, a cool thing. Well, maybe we have another show sometime and we just break down force fetch. Could yeah, we in, could definitely this, do that in this method if you're open to it. I know this is something you've you've worked really hard on, but I I think you know there's a lot of people that now myself included that are like <laughs> I got to know what it is. Like I, I want to <laughs> see it. I mean, obviously they can right. go to your site and see it. So here, there you go. There's your there's yep. your call Retrieve to action roadmap. Yeah, now you you got me sucked in. I'm gonna I'm in. <laughs> I want to watch it. And I my dog retrieves. She does great, but I want to see this because like. On my mind, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to understand dogs in ways that I've never tried to understand them before. So I'm just fascinated by it. That's why I can have conversations like this that can just go mm-hmm. and go and go. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. when I'm, when I'm hunting with, with, uh, trainers and, and, you know, I'm just like, I'm just fascinated all the time. Um, you know, and gosh, we've been talking for like an hour and a half already, Josh. Uh, let's, let's try to put a bow on this. Um, okay. what is, a well, I've got like a thousand more questions. What? Let's let's do this. What is a what is a common mistake? The most common mistake you see people that train their own dogs make? Uh, without a question, going too fast. Um, you know, they're, too slow is always better than too fast. You know, and and again, I keep referring back to you know Rick and Ronnie and Delmer because you, know, you guys have talked about them, and and I just. Yeah, I've learned so much from them. They're great people and great teachers. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I heard Rick say at one of the first seminars I ever went of his was that he's never seen a dog ruined by going too slow. 
but he's seen a lot of them ruined by going too fast. And I firmly believe that I am in complete agreement because, um, you know, especially, and I, I really believe it has to do with social media today. Yeah. I think, um, you know, people on social media now, it's like, we want to get to the fun stuff so we can show it off. You know, we want to show our buddies. We want to show our family, like, this is what my dog can do. Like nobody's showing off on leash obedience. You know, I mean, like nobody's, nobody's doing that. You know, you're not putting that on your Instagram story. Um, You know, you want to get to the fun stuff, but going too fast is, is the quickest way to move backwards. You know I mean? Like, like that, that old Navy seal, um, you know, saying, which is uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Like that, that's this, you know, like Mm -hmm. going slow is the best way to do this. Cause you think about not only you're trying to teach your dog something, but quite frankly, you're trying to teach it in a language that they don't know. Like they, it kind of might be a newsflash for people, but like your dog doesn't speak English, you know? And so you're trying to teach them a new language and teach them how to progress and work towards a goal. There's a lot going on. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, I think Amazon is, uh, has trained us to you know click and we can have everything we, we want in uh, two days. And this is not one of those things. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's a really, really good, point and, and we can close on that and sorry I can't I'm not going to close yet because like I hear people that don't do their own training and they talk to their dog as if giving them a whole sentence or paragraph of a command is actually going to make sense for the dog like use one word like whoa here yeah stay you know like they understand that Daisy's looking at me right now she's like which one do you want me to do dad <laughs> but like oh gosh just you know I, I feel like uh, this information that, that you have and the wisdom that you have is is just priceless. So hopefully people have uh, enjoyed listening to you. I know I have. Brandon, you know, like you've got, uh, maybe you're going to get another dog again. Maybe, maybe, and, yeah. And, and I feel like you could use this information to build a foundation with your dog that you will have a dog that if you choose to hunt or not, with that dog will always be just like a sweetheart, a dog that you can take into public. You don't have to hunt with that dog, but they will have manners that will just oh, other people, other people see it. And they're like, Holy cow. I mean, I remember working on the street with my dog, you know, on the, on the lead and day after day, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, 10 minutes here, you know, in a, in a half acre space um, and working with her. And now the neighbors are like, look at her, you know, like she doesn't need to be on a leash right now. Like, no, she knows her boundaries. She knows her rules, you know, and she comes immediately when I call her, she comes right to me. She will heal. Like it's, it's awesome. It's yeah. Well, it's so cool. And it's cool for me. Cause I had, when I, when I had my, my previous dog, I got him like when I was in my early twenties yeah. and you know, I trained him. I spent a lot of time with him, but now I'm learning all these things. And later on in life, I'm like, Hmm, there's a lot of things I could have done better. My dog was great. Turned out just fine. Didn't sure. hunt, but was just, sure. you know, it was a house dog, but yeah, no, there's so many of these things that you can just apply to just whatever type of dog that you have or whatever you want to use your dog for, whether it's mm-hmm. a, taking a dog out for your, morning run or having a hiking dog it doesn't have to be like a hunting sort of a thing so right, right. yeah i think you could apply this sort of thing to, to so much and i was just checking out the website too josh the riverstonekennels.com it's a great looking mm-hmm. website it's set up fantastically it's really easy yeah. to navigate for people to get around on it's 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 just a really good place to go so if anyone wants to check out more from josh please go to riverstonekennels.com because it's it's fantastic yeah you've got two two Thanks, sites and, and between you and your wife i know you you guys are you're 
your training skills are elite. Your photography skills are elite. I mean, you just, you, you're, you're running, uh, what appears to be just, you know, a high end operation. And obviously, you know, just listening to the, the training wisdom has, has been a blessing. So you've given us a couple hours of your time. Um, I hope people will, you know, if they, if they choose to want to learn more, they can reach out to you or they can go, you know, the retrieverroadmap.com as well and learn more about, you know, the videos that you're offering out there to see it. It's something to hear it. It's another thing to see it. I've seen it and, um, you know, it really can help you to become a trainer for your own dog that will help you guys have a bond in the field to reach that level if you so choose to want it. So, Josh, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys both, Travis, Brandon, both you guys, and you know, thank you for everyone listening. And um, let's do this again, guys. It sounds like you have more questions, and I certainly uh, want to talk with you guys more. So, um, you know, maybe sometime again here in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great opportunity to just ask our listeners for specific dog training questions. You know, I come up with, I, I mean, I don't have any question, questions written down here. Like I, as we're talking, Josh, like I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm thinking through things and like, I want to know more about what you know. So I'm asking these questions, but I could see us having, you know, ask a trainer show. Brandon, oh, I don't yeah. know what you think Absolutely. about that, but like just listeners sending us questions, I'll keep them. And then whenever it happens that we have you on, um, you know, we can, we can throw these questions out there. So find us at, uh, you know, on Instagram, just search the flush TV, same with Facebook, same with, uh, the World Wide web, the flush TV is, is the website. And then people send me a lot of stuff directly too. You can just search Travis Frank on, uh, so on Instagram and, and send me messages as well. I keep all this information. I love interacting with, with all of you. So keep it, keep the lines of communication open. I'll do the same. Brandon, any, any last thoughts today as we wrap up uh, segment two of the dog training? I've, uh, I've listened to two and a half hours worth of dog <laughs> stuff in the past two days. I think I'm pretty much an expert at this point. Yeah, you so, can train a dog. Sorry, Josh. It looks like I'm going to be starting up a competing business to yours. What are you going to call yeah. it? Uh, I don't know yet. I'm still in the process of developing this business idea. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's still budding. <laughs> river Run Kennels. Yeah, there you go. There you go. River Pebble yes. Kennels. Stone River. <laughs> there you go. I think Josh is gonna gonna outcompete you. <laughs> I, I know he will. <laughs> yes. All right, Josh. Good luck chasing those turkeys out there. Thank you guys so much. You guys have a great rest of the week and uh, great talking with you guys. Thank you again. You bet. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new, anybody, especially a kid, to the field. <laughs> <laughs>